Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi and I'm uh, a policy analyst at the newly established Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. Since uh, the end of the Second World War, much progress has been made in uh, uh, freeing of uh, trade relations between countries. Um, but much more progress uh, has been made on uh, freeing uh, trade in manufacturing uh, and uh, agricultural protectionism still remains a problem. Just to give you a sense, uh, the developed world's protectionism against developing uh, countries' agricultural exports is four to seven times higher than developed world's protectionism against uh, manufacturing produce from developing countries. In addition to tariff and non-tariff barriers, such as anti-dumping legislation, for example, uh, exporters from developing world have to deal with uh, uh, support and uh, financial subsidies that uh, farmers in rich countries receive from their respective governments. In 2004, for example, agricultural support in the OECD came to about $280 billion. Uh, the European Union subsidized their farmers to the tune of $133 billion, United States to the tune of uh, $47 billion, Japan to the tune of $47 billion. You get the picture. Um, were agricultural protectionism to be eliminated, the, uh, the poor countries as a whole would benefit. But the greatest benefit uh, would go to the protectionist countries themselves. For it is uh, the taxpayer and the consumer in the rich countries that pays twice. First, in taxes, uh, which then finance the subsidies to their farmers, and then second time, as consumers, when they buy goods in uh, their shops, uh, which, could be, which could be cheaper had it not been for agricultural protectionism. The World Bank, uh, two years ago, in their Global Economic Prospects report, has calculated that global gains from uh, uh, trade liberalization would amount, agricultural trade liberalization, excuse me, would amount to about $193 billion. Um, and, and the vast majority of that amount of money would actually go to, to the rich countries themselves. And yet, free trade, especially deregulation of, uh, uh, or endoprotectionism in agricultural sector seems to be stalled. Now, why that is the case, um, we, are, we are happy to have somebody, somebody, very, uh, somebody very knowledgeable to help us understand, and that is, of course, uh, our first speaker, Patrick Messelin, who is a professor of politics at the uh, Sans Po, uh, and um, uh, he heads there the uh, Group Économique Mondiale, which is an independent research center seeking to improve the performance of French and European policies in a global world. Uh, between 2002 and 2005, uh, Patrick was the co-chairman with Ernesto Zedillo, former Mex from president of Mexico, um, on, uh, uh, the direct, uh, on the Yale Center for the Study of Globalization uh, and the task force on trade in the United Nations Millennium Project. Between 2001 and 2002, he was special advisor to Mike Moore, uh, the director general of uh, WTO. He is uh, a very distinguished academic, and uh, he has published a dozen books and more than 100 uh, uh, papers and articles on trade policy and, economic and, and political economy. His most recent books are Measuring the Costs of Protection in Europe, European Commercial Policy in uh, 2000, 
Um, he has also published Europe after the no votes and uh, so on. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please let me help welcome Patrick Messling to the Cato Institute. Uh, Marianne, thank you very much for these uh, kind words of introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here, and it's an honor. And being exposed in Paris uh, to the reputation of being uh, ultra-liberal, it means uh, too much market-oriented. I want to refresh a little bit my energy by coming here and to feel a little bit statist, uh, the good traditional statist French. Uh, let's try to do it. Uh, this, um, the agricultural policy is a very strange policy, in fact, uh, and uh, it, it creates a lot of challenge. It's a complete flux, and I think that's really important, that that's the main message of what I'm saying today. Uh, there is a flux in Europe. If we are just whining and inert, the flux will go nowhere. If we are proactive, then there will be a window of opportunity for changing deeply things and I will provide some information about that. Let me first refresh you about things that probably most of you know, but not necessarily in great detail and not necessarily in the EU. Uh, you know that since the Rue Grande in the 95, signed in 95, there has been a very slow uh, movement of liberalization. Slow because it's, uh, it was, in some sense, cast by the Rue Grande, uh, this round has reintroduced the agriculture in the trade negotiations, but has been has not really taken the measure commitments in terms of liberalization. However, at the community level, there has been a series of uh, partial reforms. In '92, the Macquarie reform, which focused on cereals and has been necessary for preparing, in fact, the signature of the '95 agreement by the community. We have also the Agenda 2000, which have been focusing on financing the, uh, the CAP, the Common Agri Policy, uh, taking into account the enlargement uh, to the EU 25 or 27 uh, member states. In 2003, there has been a reform on decoupling. The coupling subsidies mean that the subsidies are now granted this year. In fact, for the first time, they are granted based on past decisions and not on present or future decisions of productions, which in some sense means they are less discretionary than they used to be. This year also we have started the, the 2006, decided and will start the 2006 reform on sugar. In line, uh, fruits and vegetables, and especially apples and tomatoes. You have to be very micro-micro in this game. Uh, apples and tomatoes. And also, I forgot to put that, and it's a mistake, uh, the 2008 review, budgetary review, which will be crucial, and uh, we'll come back later on. An interesting consequences, which was an unexpected, unintended consequences of that, is that the farmers... The European farmers are beginning to be fed up by all these partial reforms, which means, in fact, they are beginning to think maybe we should shoot at a real reform for good. So in some sense, they are opening their mind to a serious, complete reform of the common agricultural policy. It's, not, it's one of the reasons. It's not the only reasons, but it's an important reason. 
Now, what have been the outcomes of these reforms? And the first one is a declining protection, I use this term, tariff equivalence of the global protection. By global protection, I mean not only the protection by subsidy, by tariffs, sorry, the traditional import uh, duties, but also protection by subsidies and all the kind of subsidies. And God knows that in the European community, we have many subsidies. So uh, the OECD is calculating this global protection. You know the name about producer um, subsidy equivalent or support equivalent, PACs. I'm using a little bit different instrument. It's the same, but it's a different, which is the tariff equivalent of these PACs. And when you look at this tariff equivalent for the two major uh, OECD countries, then you can see a small decline, the community going down from 70%. The vertical line has to be read like a tariff line, you know, it's in percentage like a tariff. So the community in 86, 88, the average of these three years, which are the reference year for us, the community has gone down from basically 70% to 50%. It's a liberalization, but of course at a very high level. The U.S. from 30 to 20%. Uh, so there has been some liberalization, not enough, of course, uh, still a lot of protection. More uh, in a more worrisome way, the protection is really uh, located in a few goods. So we have a very wide dispersion of distribution of protection. And I think that's important for the future, and especially for the current negotiation in the dollar around. When you look at crops, you can see that most of the crops, be careful, and the, the scale is, means that the first line is between 0% and 50%. So uh, we are still in a very uh, wide range of protection. But you can see that most of the crops, in fact, are between 10 and 20% in terms of global protection, subsidies, tariff, and anything, everything you can imagine. The only one that's really far above this, uh, this uh, average is sugar. So this is the key sugar reform. At the uh, latest year here, it was the rate of protection was the equivalent of 450%, and the sugar reform is trying to get to 100%. So it's, it's a tariff of 100%. So don't, don't, don't imagine it's a deep liberalization. It's just a cooling down, an erosion of the protection. And of course, that's quite... Uh, unsatisfactory. Even more unsatisfactory is the milk and meat products in which most of them are basically between 30 and 80% in terms of average rate of protection, starting sometimes from a very high wage uh, rate of protection. So the situation is a little bit better in tariff uh, equivalent global protection, but by not, not by a lot, and there are still a lot of things to do. The second outcome of the reforms is more institutional, but of course it's very key, is the decoupling of the subsidies. Again, the fact that subsidies are no more related to the current or future decisions of production, but to the past decisions of production, so in some sense they are considered as less discretionary. We use this instrument, which for example in France has been just implemented this month, uh, so it's really an ongoing uh, reform. This is called the single farm payments. Now, the, 
farmers receive a sum which is based on his past uh, prediction. Uh, be careful in the uh, commission language and the committee language. They say, oh, so we have decouple all I support. It's not true. When you look at the single farm payments, the package represents 25 billion of euros, which are now decoupled. But in fact, there are many other instruments in the community which have been used, market price support, etc., etc., which are still going on. So you have to compare this 25 billion of euros package to the total, which is 105 billion of euros. So it's only the single farm payments focus only on 25% of the global protection granted to the community since the tariffs have not been touched and many other subsidies have not been touched. So my second series of points is what have been the, the consequences uh, of this reform, ongoing reform. Of course, this reform has been done in order to, to allow the community to go to Geneva and to the Doha round negotiation in a much better situation in terms of subsidies. We have greener subsidies than, in fact, the U.S., and the prime of the U.S. is that the U.S. have not followed the same path. So in some sense, in the subsidy negotiation, and you have heard that in Washington certainly during the last uh, three, four months, the U.S. is very nervous, and the EDC is pointing at you and saying, you are the bad guys, we are the good guys. Now, uh, there is no one always completely, it's not completely wrong, but it's not completely true either, which means that we are maybe um, a better situation in, for negotiation, but there are two costs which are still there. First, we have not liberalized uh, prices or tariff, which means that since prices are still the same, all this distortion are in the place, in, in place. And in fact, you have an OECD review of this reform showing that everything being constant, the global rate of protection of the community has decreased from 56% to 55% according, you know, with this single farm payment stuff. So it really means that in terms of global protection, nothing had changed. It's just we change uh, the way we have green subsidies. So you may say, oh, that's Europe as usually, one step before, forward, one step backward, you know, and no, nobody even moved. Well, I would like to insist on the fact that it's more dynamic in several um, directions. First, this eco-conditionality. In order to get this single farm payment, the community has accepted, has imposed, in fact, on farmers that they should follow uh, ecological rules, environmental rules, a series of regulations. We know that generally this kind of regulation, especially coming from Brussels and being EC-wide, may in fact create increase the cost of protection the cost of production in the future so these eco conditionality provisions are a threat in the future because they will increase the cost of production they, so they will fuel uh, demands for more protection because of increased cost of production among the farmers so there is a danger uh, in the uh, in the long run now we have three dynamics effect that I would like really to look at very closely because the two first are very positive. The third one is ambiguous. The first dynamic effect is that all this discussion on the single farm payment uh, has helped us in Europe to do the work that you did in the U.S. with Ken Cook uh, on the uh, large farmers versus small farmers and the subsidies. Uh, 
the Europeans are beginning to think that it's really shocking that the Queen of England uh, has a lot of subsidies, that the Prince of Monaco has a lot of subsidies in, in France. Uh, we are supposed to be good Republicans, and uh, we suddenly find uh, ourselves uh, with, a, with a prince uh, getting on the um, uh, state subsidies, etc. And that has really made a change in the public opinion. We have done, uh, Group d'Economie Mondiale has done this work thanks to the German Marshall Fund support on the subsidies in, in France, and I can tell you that has really changed the political landscape uh, on, on many respects. We can come back during the discussion about that. In, a, in other words, that has created the feeling among the population that the current common agricultural policy is illegitimate, which, is not, which was not the case a few years ago. Um, the second effect, which is dynamic effect, does not really uh, look at the people at large, but it looks at the, the, the farmers. And the farmers are now scratching their head and uh, giving you the example, the farmers which receive the largest amount of subsidies is, is a rice grower. That was a big surprise for us. I mean, nobody would thought that rice was really the, the top of the subsidies, uh, rice farmers. He receives, according to the current figures, eight, 800,000 euros every year, and he will receive that under the single farm payment, whether he's growing rice, whether he's growing uh, uh, cattle, whether he's going to the Riviera and enjoying a good life, he will receive the 800,000 euros every year. It means that when years will pass, people in the street will say, why, as a taxpayer, I should give this 800,000 euros every year to this nice fellow um, forever? It creates a feeling among the farmers that they will be in a more and more difficult situation vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the people. And in fact, it, the, what I want to say, to convey, and I think in the US history you have, the, you have experienced that in some sense. The decoupling of the subsidies is a transitory solution. It has always been conceived as a transitory solution by the economists, but politically speaking, it is a transitory solution. You cannot provide subsidies forever on production pattern which you know is going back in the past more and more uh, uh, when the, the years are passing. So in some sense the single farm payment is an unsustainable uh, solution and now let's put everything together. Um, too many partial reforms, unsustainable current reform, again one more force uh, to a change. Now the last dynamic effect is ambiguous. Uh, countries, member states can play a little bit what they want in, in the way they implement this single farm payment. My own country, of course, uh, played the protectionist uh, role. Uh, they are used all the, the ways to, to keep the things how they stand. So there is a kind of slow and marginal renationalization, which means that the community, on one hand, may become more diverse in terms of policies, but on the other hand, you may have still strong-headed uh, protectionist interest. The second, so that's the outcome of the reforms. Now, the last point I would like to look at is the um, um, EC in the Doha round. First point, export subsidies. 
And in export subsidies, we have done, the EC has done a kind of unilateral liberalization, not for the sake of unilateral liberalization, but simply because they are very expensive. And of course, very expensive economically speaking, it's 8 billion of euros at the beginning uh, of the uh, 95. And politically, they are very bad in terms of impact on the rest of the world. And, you know, Oxfam, etc., have put a lot of pressure on these export subsidies. So they have unilaterally, the EC has unilaterally decreased. It's around 4 billion of euros these days. Uh, when the sugar reform will be, uh, sugar represents one-third, a big one-third of these export subsidies. The other big product is milk with 45% of export subsidies. We have no reform on milk so far, but the reform on sugar will probably get 1 billion of euros less. So in some sense, the reform is in, in a good shape. Uh, the Hong Kong ministerial in December the last year has decided the elimination of the export subsidies by 2013. <coughs> and my sense is that even if the dollar would collapse, this elimination will arrive. Again, for, for budgetary reasons, for political, political reasons, so the unilateral liberalization will arrive. The interesting point is, the, and, and there will be no reversal of the Hong Kong decision, even if the door around will collapse, definitely, or for a long time. Now, the political pressure for more liberalization is the following one, and I think it's an interesting uh, point. All the models the World Bank that Marion mentioned uh, before suggest very strongly that if you liberalize only export subsidies, then there will be a lot of unhappy people in the rest of the world. Some countries, the net, importing country, uh, net food importers, uh, and especially the developing countries, which are net food importers, will be hurt by uh, the elimination of export subsidies, everything being constant. So in some sense, this elimination of the export subsidies alone is not something which uh, brings happiness uh, in the consumers in the rest of the world. The only way to deal with that is either to reintroduce uh, export subsidies, and I, that will not be my first uh, guess, you know, I don't think that very likely. So the only way to do it is, in fact, to go further in trade liberalization. And it's very strong on us, because who are these nice uh, food importers countries in the world? A big check on it goes from Morocco to Iran very close to our borders, and not especially people that we want to touch too much about price increases in sugar and stuff like that. We don't want to create riots and to create probably political problems in Tunis or in Cairo because the price will go up. So in some sense, there is a strong interest of Europeans to go further. And to go further means to uh, go on the market access. This is really the, the problem for us. It's not Domestic subsidies, domestic support, as I said, which is more a problem of the U.S. It's for us. It's really a problem of import tariff. As in the U.S., we have a lot of specific tariffs, so there has been a need to change the specific tariff in ad valorem tariff, and the, the Commission has put an offer on the table. And it has put a strange offer on the table. It has taken me two months to get this offer on the table. Because the, the WTO, everybody in the WTO say the process is very transparent. But get, try to get the offers on the detail line by line. I will tell you that's not easy, at least in Europe. You have to have very good friends. Uh, <laughs> and not in my country. Uh, 
the, the reason that the, the, the point is the following one. Here, the diagram just put the points. It's just an illustration. On the horizontal line, you have the initial tariffs as they are, including the ad valorem equivalents of the specific tariffs. So that, for the community, goes from 0%. We have 500 lines with a 0% tariff to 400%. I did not put the 400% because, you know, it would make just the chart smaller and not very visible. So this is the horizontal line. The vertical line, this is the post-DOA tariff, which would exist depending the offer. The blue line, which is a strange line, is the offer of the commission. And you can see there are peak around 80%. Yeah, you see a peak, and then you have a small decrease, and then the line is going straight to very high figures. So let's say the 80%, if you have an initial tariff of 80%, it means that according to the current table, table EC proposal, you, you will have a post-DOA tariff of 40%. This is the way to look at the line. Now, what I put here, and again, it's not realistic in terms of the Geneva negotiation, but it's important in terms of domestic political uh, situation, I put a red line. The red line, for those who know a little bit about trade issues, you immediately recognize is a Swiss formula, and which has this kind of shape, uh, round shape. And it's a Swiss formula, probably a Swiss with a coefficient of factor of 80, I cannot remember. So the, the, the question, the key question, the key political question is the following one. The red line crossed the blue line at an initial tariff 150%. It splits all the initial tariff in two parts. The tariff higher than 150%, the tariff lower than 150%. With the Swiss formula, the tariff higher than 50% would be unhappy compared to the current EU formula. Instead of going to the blue line, they will have post-DOA lower tariff. For all the tariff, initial tariffs today of 150%, the people will be happier, the producers will be happier with the red Swiss formula compared to the um, current EC offer. So the question is, who are the guys which are on the right of 150%, the people who will be unhappy, and who are the guys who are on the left of 150%, uh, the people will be happier with the Swiss formula? And the answer is quite surprising. On the right, and I, did, I have done that for several Swiss formula, on the right you find essentially agribusiness people. And on the left, farmer people. So in some sense, the current offer of the, of the commission is preserving more the agribusiness type than the farm type. And of course, selling everything in Europe on behalf of the farmers that you should take care of. And the farmers are not aware about that. I talk to farmers, they don't know that. I, I told them, I'm telling them, you are fooled. Make a strike. Good French way to do it, you know? <laughs> and I count on them. I hope that will come. And rebalance the thing. And I think this is the rebalancing. And it makes the farmers, in some sense, happier, most of the farmers happier. And the agribusiness people, most of them don't need this excessive protection. In the blue line, you know, where you have the very high uh, protection, you find yogurt. 
they don't need this protection, the yogurt people. They don't trade yogurt, basically, you know, because of, of the kind of stuff that, that you have. You find mushrooms, very bizarre. Uh, you find pet, pet food. All these people can really relatively easily adjust to a lower post-doative than to, uh, to the, with a Swiss formula than with uh, the current EU offer. And there is a possibility, in fact, to make a coalition of agribusiness people in Europe going to the Commission and asking, in fact, for cutting the higher tariff on the EU offer and making more room and better market access. Um, I think I have almost uh, spent my time, so I should... Uh, um, I will answer a question about... This is about... Uh, uh, cut in domestic support, you, I can show if somebody is interested why we are relatively relaxed in domestic support, uh, at least in the Doha negotiation, what the, the key issue is about, uh, again, um, market access and tariff. Conclusion. And this is where maybe I will suddenly show my French statist face. Uh, redesigning the cap, I don't believe in the elimination of uh, the cap. What I would like to get is a redesign, a careful redesign of the common agriculture policy. And I take my source from the Keynes Group. Who could be more demanding than somebody from the Keynes Group? And I remember in the Seattle, somebody, the Argentinian minister in Seattle say about multifunctionality, that the word I reintroduce here just for provocation, uh, come on, all of us will, ha will have to have some multifunctionality in our countries. We have problems in the Pampas, etc., etc. So there, everybody will need to have still a, an agricultural policy. The prime is to have a good agricultural policy. What are the needs which could drive a new cap uh, in Europe? Two possibilities, adjustment and multifunctionality. Adjustment, it's not really a problem for us. Why? Because we are very lucky. Many farmers are old. So in some sense, the adjustment process will be a kind of demographic uh, stuff, and that could be relatively smooth. We don't need a lot of money. We, we may need some money, but not a lot of money and not for a long time. There is a disturbing factor. I just mentioned it, which is the bioenergy policies. I'm very afraid about the bioenergy policies, which are becoming interfering with the, with the agricultural policies in a very, very distortive and unfriendly and uh, an economic way. The interesting aspect is we should be careful that the new cap will not be the monster of the old cap. And in fact, there is in the EU a kind of domestic discipline that you may find in the US, uh, certainly in a much uh, lighter form, but which is very strong for us since we are not a federal state. When you look at the current cap, the Commission is always insisting provide only community figures. They say to the OECD, you should never provide PSC by member states. That's absolutely forbidden. And the OECD cannot do uh, the, the PSC by, by member state. So what I did is a kind of tricky calculation approximating the PSC, or the, I mean the global protection uh, by member states. What you find, it's a very simple outcome in that Ireland is protected almost twice more than France. And in fact, you, you find some shocking case. You mentioned in your, 
invitation, the, the British ambassador uh, saying that the cap was the most stupid thing in the earth, uh, say that in London. <laughs> That's more, much more difficult to sell in London than outside London. Um, even with a former, I was really burnt by Lord Britain when I wanted to say that we have to change the, the, the cap very deeply. Uh, what is the reason for that? Very simple. Ireland is essentially producing milk and meat, beef, the two highest, more pro, most protected item. So it, it is an interactive mixture of very diverse rate of protection. Farmers, of course, trying to produce this, the product with the highest rate of protection, especially if they have no other way to do it, like in Ireland. So, but it's unsustainable in the long run. Sooner or later, I am sure that this table in the Council of Ministers will, will, will just land on the Council of Ministers table and the people will say, that's absolutely impossible that we get only half of the protection than the other. The French case is very bizarre, but it's very simple to explain. We have one of the most diverse agricultural uh, economy, and many goods like here, many goods are not supported by subsidies, but not supported by high tariffs. So, in some sense, many French farmers could live without caps in in many respects. And I think this uh, this aspect will certainly discipline uh, the EU. And I hope that's the second line. It will favor the EU to use a, a uniform tariff, which means whatever the, the agricultural goods you want, you will get the same tariff. And we know an example in uh, history, which is Chile, when you have a uniform tariff, things are immediately going much better uh, for many reasons. Last, 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 last point, uh, the, the farmers, uh, what I just, and I may come back uh, during the answer, uh, question answer um, session, what I can tell you is really the, the farmers are thinking twice these days. They don't have any more, and I'm talking about French farmers that I know well, the other farmers I don't know, of the other member states I don't know. They understand two things, three, but two, uh, crucial. First, they can begin to understand that the common agricultural policy is the worst foe of the common agricultural market. This is the sugar case. The sugar case will be a fantastic case. When we decrease the price from three times the world price to twice the world price, we don't liberalize a lot, but we eliminate basically all the Italian sugar beet producers. They are going out of business within the next two or three years. Then suddenly the French sugar producers say, for God's sake, during 40 years, I was unable to export to Italy. This damn common agricultural policy has cost me the Italian market for 40 years. So they begin to understand in terms of common market rather than in terms of common policy. And I think that's the crucial aspect. And of course, that be, as that's the, same, the, the last line. Uh, they are beginning more and more businessmen, and I think that's, of course, extremely important because they want now a quick reform. And when I talk to the farmers and say, don't wait for 2013, the official year for the next reform, use the budgetary review of the 2008 for making the reforms, they don't boot at me. They just say, oh, maybe, yes, we should be very careful. If we have to do a reform, maybe the, the, the fastest, maybe the, the faster may be the best. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patrick. 
And to convince you that um, CAP should be scrapped altogether, we have our next speaker, Dan Griswold. I'm actually not going to preempt what Dan is going to say. I'll leave it up to him. But uh, Dan is a colleague of mine. He is the director of the Cato Institute Center for Trade Policy Studies. He's joined Cato in 1997, and he has authored and co-authored major studies on trade, immigration, also including study, uh, 2005 study on uh, farm programs titled Ripe for Reform, and a study coming out next month on the United States Rice Program. Uh, Dan has been published in major newspapers and has appeared on numerous TV and radio news and talk shows uh, here um, in the United States. He has testified before congressional committees and uh, federal agencies on immigration, trade deficit, and the cost of protectionism. He holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and a diploma in economics and a master's degree in, in the politics of the world economy from the London School of Economics. Uh, Dan, welcome. Thank you very much, Marion. And I am uh, delighted to be here and to share the podium with Dr. Messerlin. He uh, has a reputation around the world. He is, he is part of that uh, small but uh, marvelous subset of humanity known as the French free trade intellectual. There aren't that many of them around. <laughs> Frédéric Bastier, he's in a, a, a very uh, uh, impressive group. And I wish it was larger. Maybe it will be one day. Um, and I am certainly not here to defend the cap. Uh, although I think uh, Dr. Messelin's pointed out uh, a lot of its vulnerabilities. Uh, and it, it may be less relevant to Americans uh, than we think. Yes, the cap does depress global prices. It keeps uh, U.S. exports uh, out of Europe to, uh, to an extent. Uh, but cap reform is far more important to the Europeans themselves than it is to Americans. And reform of our own farm programs are far more important to us uh, than reform uh, of the cap. In fact, if I were a, a cynical Washington politician, I might uh, quietly uh, be thankful for the common agricultural policy. One, it makes U.S. farm programs look downright uh, reasonable and market-friendly. Uh, second, it provides an expensive example that somebody else is paying for, for how not to manage your farm policies, and thus strengthening the case for reform around the world. And it misallocates resources uh, within the European Union, wastes a huge share of the EU budget. I think it's uh, still up to 40% of the EU budget, uh, dampening growth and innovation uh, in the European Union and helping the United States maintain its uh, economic edge over the European Union. Uh, but the only good thing I can say about U.S. farm policy is that it's not as bad as the cap. And the only thing good I can say about the cap is that it's not as bad as it used to be. Uh, I think they do deserve credit for moving in a market uh, d direction, and that uh, should not be ignored, although they have a long way to go, and I'm going to comment on that in a moment. But when you have the, the basic Cato philosophy of limited government, free markets, individual liberty, peaceful relations among uh, nations, both the United States and the European Union's farm policy uh, do not look good. In fact, they, are, they fail the test of good public policy. Farmers in OECD countries, as, as Marion mentioned, uh, received $280 billion in equivalent support last year, both from tariff protection and more direct consumer subsidies. As a share of farm income, that is 16% here in the United States, one out of $6 that U.S. farmers receive basically come from the government. 
That's 32 percent uh, in the European Union. Uh, so they're approximately, by that measure, twice, twice as bad as U.S. policies. Uh, both the EU and the United States come out looking pretty good compared to Japan and South Korea and Switzerland, uh, where support levels to farmers are 50 percent to two-thirds of farm income. In contrast, I might add, in Australia, it's 5 percent, and in New Zealand, it's 3 percent. So other advanced industrialized countries have shown they can have thriving uh, farm sectors without uh, subsidies. In, in raw numbers, U.S. farmers received about $43 billion in uh, various forms of government support last year, and that compares to $133 billion uh, given to European Union farmers. So you get a, a, an idea of the contrast in the policies, although $43 billion is $43 billion uh, too much, uh, approximately, in my view. Now, our research at Cato shows that the biggest losers from protecting and subsidizing agriculture are the people who live in the countries where the governments are doing the subsidizing and protecting. Uh, our study last year, Ripe for Reform, documents the high price that Americans pay every day for our farm programs, never mind uh, what the European Union farm programs are, the price we pay every year. Uh, and the benefits that we would enjoy if Congress were to adopt a more market-friendly farm bill, and the farm bill is coming up for reauthorization uh, next year. It's going to be rewritten. In fact, we found six important ways uh, that Americans would be better off if we had a more market-oriented farm policy. And you can take every one of these reasons and multiply them by two and apply it uh, to the European Union. So this applies, uh, when if I say Americans just substitute Europeans in times by two, and you've got a pretty good idea. Uh, the first reason for reform of the cap and of U.S. farm policy is consumers, the much-abused, much-forgotten uh, consumer who pays higher prices at the grocery store. I understand in the European Union it's basically double uh, for a lot of food commodities. Uh, here in the United States we pay uh, roughly twice the world price for sugar, 23 percent higher uh, than the world price for dry milk, 37 percent higher for the world price for cheese, uh, butter, uh, other commodities, peanuts, cotton, beef, orange juice, canned tuna, and other products. Uh, basically, U.S. farm programs are transferring uh, more than $10 billion a year from, farm, from food consumers uh, to food uh, producers here in the United States. And it's a very regressive tax. You know, poor families spend a higher share of their budget on food than wealthier families, so we have a regressive tax uh, taking money out of the pockets of the poorest American families and sending them to farmers who have an average income that's 10 percent higher than the average income here in the United States. So, one, uh, consumers. The second reason for reforming these programs uh, on both sides of the Atlantic is that it would lower costs and promote exports uh, for producers and, and their workers. Uh, U.S. farm programs are costly for the food processing industry uh, here in the United States uh, that pay higher prices for their inputs. Uh, you know, the, the Commerce Department documented this earlier this year. The confectionery industry around Chicago has been decimated by uh, high sugar prices, and U.S. candy factories have gone to Mexico and to Canada uh, where they can uh, import sugar at, at world prices. It's hurt uh, U.S. restaurants and uh, other franchises, bakeries, food processing industries, uh, it has been bad for U.S. manufacturing, bad for U.S. workers. Uh, and also, 
Uh, a broad swath of U.S. industry is paying the price every day because farm programs, U.S. farm programs, European farm programs, have become the main stumbling block uh, for progress in the WTO. So we are sitting on the sidelines uh, forfeiting tremendous gains in market access around the world, not only for U.S. manufactured products and U.S. agricultural products, but for services, which is really where the, the major gains uh, are. They're all being held hostage uh, to our uh, farm programs, our distortionary and expensive uh, farm programs. Well, the third reason for reforming programs in the United farm programs in the United States and in Europe is to save taxpayers dollars. Uh, this is this is real money uh, by by any uh, measure. The Freedom to Farm Act of 1996 was supposed to put farm subsidies on a glide path uh, downward to basically zero in terms of market uh, distorting subsidies. Uh, within a year or two after passage of that bill, the East Asian financial meltdown uh, came and global commodity prices uh, dipped and Congress started to pass a series of emergency bills and they were all codified in the uh, 2002 uh, Farm Bill to where today we're spending uh, close to $20 billion a year uh, in direct taxpayer subsidies uh, to, to U.S. farmers. Uh, and it's supposedly ben benefiting the family farm, and this, uh, it's, it's very encouraging that the uh, Europeans are finally waking up to the fact that it's not going to the small family farmer, not that I'm advocating uh, subsidies to uh, small farmers either, uh, but they're realizing it's going to agribusiness, it's going to large farmers, it's going to people who don't farm but own land uh, that uh, is part of uh, decoupled payments. The average farm uh, family farm now enjoys a household income 10% above the U.S. average. Only one-third of U.S. farms actually receive uh, subsidies, uh, and, and more than two-thirds of those subsidies go to 10% of subsidy recipients and more than half to just 5% of recipients. Uh, Marion mentioned that I have a study coming out uh, next month on the U.S. rice program. Uh, we have allocated an average of $1 billion a year uh, since the late 1990s to the U.S. farm program, benefiting fewer than 10,000 uh, rice farmers. There's no principled reason why a small group of farmers should be singled out for direct subsidies from U.S. taxpayers. Well, the fourth reason is the environment. Uh, and uh, there, uh, people in the United States are as interested as the in, in the environment as Europeans, and farm programs are frankly not uh, a friend of the environment. I believe most farmers uh, want to be good stewards of the environment, but these farm programs are undermining uh, good stewardship. They're encouraging uh, the farming of fragile marginal land, which is leading to the overuse of uh, pesticides and fertilizers, of plowing up land that is contributing uh, to erosion. Uh, there's a pretty direct correlation around the world in the level of government support for farms and the use of pesticides and, and fertilizers because the subsidies encourage marginal land, which requires these inputs in order to make them uh, as, as economical as possible. So the highest subsidies and the highest use of uh, fertilizers per acre happen to be in countries like Japan, Korea, uh, and Switzerland, whereas in New Zealand and Australia and developing countries, they don't tend to use these inputs because they have uh, natural comparative advantage uh, in, these, in these products. And also, farm subsidies drive up the price of land. They become capitalized 
uh, in the value of the land, which, by the way, makes it harder for young farmers to get into the business because land's expensive, but it also crowds out alternative uses in terms of uh, parkland, forest land, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So it's not environmentally friendly. If you want to preserve hedgerows and encourage more uh, environmentally friendly stewardship of the land, you don't need a whole infrastructure of subsidy for production. You just target those subsidies directly at the activities. Uh, and I think some of that decoupling is going on uh, to the credit uh, of, of the Europeans. Uh, a fifth reason is that farm reform, I believe, certainly here in the United States, would be good for rural communities. Uh, the, the last farm bill was called 2002, uh, uh, not surprisingly, uh, the Farm Security and Rural Development Act. Uh, every farm bill promises to promote rural development, and every farm bill fails to deliver on rural development. In fact, farm programs are retarding rural development by concentrating production in a handful of uh, program crops like corn, uh, like wheat, like cotton, uh, that don't create jobs or innovation uh, in, these, in these rural communities. In fact, there was a study by the uh, Kansas City Federal Reserve uh, Board, which I mentioned in my study, that found there was actually a negative correlation between farm payments uh, per capita to various American counties and their production of uh, jobs and population growth. So farm programs are actually linked with slower job growth, slower uh, population growth. And I would imagine if you did that study in Europe, you very well might find the same thing. And finally, uh, U.S. farm programs are hurting the United States uh, in the world arena. It is making us look like hypocrites. It is creating ill will in developing countries where our export subsidies, our production subsidies, our trade barriers are driving down global costs and making it harder for millions of poor farmers around the world to lift themselves out of poverty. Let me just give you two examples. Our cotton program, which has been successfully challenged in the WTO, drives down global prices for cotton. Uh, and in particular, hurting poor farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. There's four or five countries there, Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, Niger. These happen to be uh, Muslim-majority countries. In fact, Mali is one of the few Muslim countries that has a functioning multi-party democracy uh, which respects human rights. How do we encourage that? We drive down the global price of their chief commodity export, uh, according to the World Bank, uh, sucking about $250 million out of their economies there, which is real money in that part of the world. We wonder why we have a difficult time uh, winning friends and influencing people. Secondly, the RICE program, and I detail this in our study coming out next month, uh, we are driving down global rice prices from 4 to 6 percent. This is making it difficult for poor farmers in countries like Vietnam. Uh, while they've had spectacular success, mostly because of their own reforms, uh, we are not contributing to that. In fact, we are uh, retarding that advancement. And there are, I believe, literally uh, tens of thousands of uh, mostly young girls in Vietnam, 14 to 15, who are working in the fields today and not in school uh, because of our farm programs. But let me just wrap up by uh, looking at the big picture, uh, stepping back from just U.S. farm programs and looking for the pros at the prospect of reform. The Farm Bill is coming up uh, in 2007, probably in the first half uh, of 2007. I think the prospect for reform is, is mixed. Uh, on the negative side, I think the uh, hibernation of the Doha Round removed an important lever. 
and I think it makes it somewhat less likely we're going to have a more reformed uh, farm bill. That's my one of my reasons for hoping the Doha round will get back on track. On a more neutral way, I think the d- November elections uh, could go either way. Uh, U.S. farm policy is depressingly bipartisan. It uh, doesn't really matter who's in power. Two-thirds of the members of both parties tend to vote uh, for the final farm bill. I don't think it's going to matter so much what the party uh, in control of the various committees is as it will, what part of the country uh, the committee chairman uh, come from. On the positive side, uh, what a lot of people are noticing is that there are a lot more interests at the table this time around. Farm legislation in the past has been a kind of insider's game with the basic uh, program commodity people getting together with the agricultural committee members and uh, writing a farm bill. Uh, but now uh, you have not only the usual suspects like the Cato Institute and, and taxpayer groups, uh, but you've got environmentalists who realize these programs are no friend to the environment. You have the producer uh, interests coming to the table. You've got uh, normally left-of-center NGOs like Oxfam uh, understanding that these programs don't help uh, poor people abroad. So I think you're at least going to have a wider discussion and more promise for reform. Uh, In terms of the Doha round, uh, I don't know when it's going to get back on track. Uh, It's kind of fun to assign blame. Uh, I think the U.S. government does deserve uh, some blame for not going far enough, although I think the proposal from the U.S. about a year ago at this time was uh, a a reasonably good proposal. And I think the U.S. did step forward and make some uh, relatively bold initiatives. I don't think the European Union responded uh, in kind, despite what Peter Mandelson uh, says. Um, And I think another problem in the WTO, aside from individual countries, is the the very rhetoric that's being used and the mindset. Uh, Clive Crook of the Atlantic called it the fruitful lie, uh, that trade negotiations are all about getting other countries to open up their markets. You make concessions by opening up your markets. For 50 years, that uh, fruitful lie has uh, worked reasonably well. Uh, But the evidence is that the politicians actually believe the lie uh, this time around. They really do think it's a burden to open up their markets uh, unless other countries uh, open up theirs. And I think we need to get past that mindset and realize that the biggest winners from trade liberalization in the European Union, and in particular the CAP, will be the Europeans themselves, as consumers, as taxpayers, as citizens of the world. The same is true here in the United States. Uh, One IMF study showed that if the rich countries got rid of their trade barriers and subsidies unilaterally, the world economy would be $100 billion better off every year. Ninety percent of that benefit would go to the citizens of the rich countries themselves. Yes, the poor countries would be better off. By the way, they'd be far better off if they got rid of their own tariffs. Uh, But they would be better off if we got rid of ours. But 90 percent of the benefits uh, would come to... Uh, those of us uh, in, in the rich countries. So let me just conclude by saying I heartily endorse uh, all the efforts for cap reform, uh, and I wish my European friends, and Dr. Messelin in particular, uh, well in, in that very important endeavor. I think our main item of business here in the United States should be reforming our own programs. They are not an asset to be held and bargained away uh, in negotiations. They're a liability. They're a ball and chain around our necks. They're a uh, a throwback to a bygone era. Uh, they're a drag on our 21st century economy. They're an embarrassment uh, in the world. The sooner we reform these programs, the better. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll now open it to question and answer session. I will ask you to wait until the microphone gets to you. Uh, will you please introduce yourselves, uh, keep your question short and in a form of a question? Um, gentleman over there, and uh, no, a gentleman in front. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for Cato for putting together a program on the CAP and to explain the CAP is uh, changing. And I think I heard uh, Daniel Griswold on records giving some credit to the CAP reform. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Thanks very much for that. A um, couple of comments, I'm afraid, more than questions. Uh, reaction to uh, the presentation on the figures given. Um, sorry, I was supposed to introduce myself, I guess. I'm uh, Jean-Marc Trariot. Could, could, could you speak a bit louder because we can't hear you, Avi? Um, I'm Jean-Marc Trahieu, I'm at the European Commission uh, here in DC. Um, the figures given maybe uh, are worth some comments. Uh, I don't want our American friends to believe that we uh, spend 105 billion euros a year on uh, um, agriculture. I guess the 105 billion euro a year uh, relate to a PSC uh, estimates from the OECD. Um, in terms of budget outlays, uh, the number is around 40 billion euro a year uh, to be compared to the 25 uh, billion euro a year mentioned as um, decoupled support. Um, and I think it's very important to refer to this, the limits of the PSC uh, estimates, the OECD produ producer subsidy estimate, uh, because it is often referred to, but it is not reflecting the trade distorting character of subsidies. Um, and in the WTO context, that's what uh, matters. The reference to 40% uh, of EU budget uh, spent on agriculture is also misleading. You, you should know that EU budget is only the um, uh, budget at, indeed, uh, let's say, EU level. But if you include all the member states' budgets, then you get uh, a figure around less than 1%, very comparable to uh, the farm bill budget. Um, on farm structures, I want to refer to um, something, maybe I missed the beginning of the, the presentation, but um, you have to bear in mind that the EU of today is not the EU of yesterday and even the EU of the 1st of January 2007. We will enlarge again. Uh, we will be 27 member states with Bulgaria and uh, Romania joining, coming on board. We will have 13 million farmers um, a couple of years ago, before 2004, we had 7 million farmers. Uh, so we'll move from 7 to 13 million farmers. Understandably, with very small um, structures. So there is a, a real, a genuine um, competitiveness problem to address. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get the answers. And uh, before just, we just, get the answers... Just quick, quick, two quick well, last points. We actually have to move on because we really have a lot of questions. So I'll get the speakers to answer at this point. Thank you. Well, I would just say the 105 billion euro figure of the producer support equivalent uh, isn't, it doesn't pretend to be a direct taxpayer subsidy to farmers. So that measures the total uh, support delivered to farmers, not just through direct subsidies, but through trade barriers. You know, a country like Japan doesn't actually give their farmers that much in terms of cash payments. They achieve all their uh, support, they deliver all their support to farmers, or most of it, through high trade barriers. 
which in some ways uh, uh, doesn't have an impact on the direct bottom line of government spending. It just uh, charges consumers directly at the grocery store, but it's still every bit as much a, a support of farmers and a cost to society as direct taxpayer uh, subsidies. Either way, I think the European Union, uh, despite all the progress, uh, and I do acknowledge it, uh, <clears throat> the European Union does not come out looking that well, either compared to the United States or compared to where I think they should be if you want to have a modern, market-oriented, uh, dynamic, uh, competitive farm policy. <clears throat> world Bank studies have shown that the, the greatest distortions to the world economy and the greatest harm inflicted on poor farmers around the world are not direct producer subsidies, although those are certainly not beneficial, but it's the trade barriers. It's a protection at the border. And here in the United States, we have plenty of trade barriers. In the European Union, they're even higher. So I would just say that that uh, line item in the budget is just part of the story. We need to get that, reduce that, but we also need to reduce the trade barriers uh, even more. Patrick, do you want to make a now, I just want to reinforce the point. I mean, if you want really to look at the trade issues from a WTO worldwide view, this is the 105 billion of euros which counts, not the 40 billion of euros of direct uh, state subsidies. That's, that's just a budgetary thing. What counts is how much you distort the whole economy and the agricultural sector, and this is the 105. Now, about the 40% the, the EC budget, you know, the, the, the figure you mentioned, as a European, I can take it maybe more easily than you. It's funny that suddenly you add the member states' budget, because then, you know, uh, of course, if you change the denominator, the ratio changed. But in fact, you know very well that in Europe, what many people don't understand, it was the European budget per se is so much absorbed by the farm uh, sector and not by the research and development and the, all the other aspects that we would like to see. It's not really a Lisbon agenda budget, as we said in Europe. It's a kind of past uh, budget. Now, about the farm structure and the enlargement, I think the, one of the important, that's an important point you mentioned, but it's certainly one good reason for us to be very quick in terms of reform because we don't have to send the Polish farmers and the Romanian farmers in a dead end. Uh, way with an old cap uh, and then suddenly five, six years later tell them, oh sorry guys, we have changed the common agri policy, now you should forget about the previous aspect. So in some sense, as Dan say, most of the reforms are necessary for the domestic reasons and one of the domestic reasons for us to do the cap is precisely not to make disillusion or anger bigger in the new member states because we change the, 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 the rules. And you know how already that is boiling in the new member states because it's already something which is difficult for them. Gentleman over there. Uh, Peter Whitney, uh, Duke University. Uh, I have a question on the biotech uh, products. On the figures of the uh, amount of... Uh, it's on. On, on, the, on the figures of the amount of barriers, are you including just the outright prohibition of various U.S. products that are not allowed in Europe because they uh, have uh, their GMOs? And this, related to that is in September, the WTO actually made a decision that favored the plaintiffs, the U.S., uh, Canada, and other members, and really found pretty strongly against the EU. 
Uh, do you think the EU will then appeal and this will drag on for a number of years? My, my hunch is eventually the EU is going to be using biotech, as many farmers already are. And how will that affect this, this dynamic that you're both speaking about? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for this question. I, I really I, I like the question because it allows me to show the reality of the, the farm business compared to what you find in the newspapers and when you talk to the politicians or the, the bureaucrats, which are, in fact, uh, one wagon too late. Uh, I have been in contact, just as an anecdote, with a large cooperative of French farmers in south of France, 15,000 farmers, so it's a large one, basically sweet corn. And they have made a poll. Do you want to use or not to use the GMOs? The figure is 75% of the French farmers are in favor of using the GMOs. So in th I really believe, and they have begun to have um, judicial cases against uh, environmentalists which are, uh, who are trying to stop that. In fact, they were inviting me with José Bové. And I thought, oh, my boy, they will get José Bové and them on my back. <laughs> I am dead. No, that was the contrary. They were inviting José Bové in order to make a coalition between them and me against José Bové. But I realized, you know, the things are completely different. When you talk to the farmers, they understand the risk of the GMOs, but also they understand that if they don't use them, they are lost. The prime that the consumers and the environmental groups uh, are much more powerful for po uh, and get much better ties with the politicians than the farmers today. That's the current situation. So I cannot answer your question because of that. But I, at least I can provide you part of the answer that the farmers are not the opposing group to the GMOs, at least part of them, a large part of them. I, I just add, I don't know if those are included in the OECD calculations or not. No, these no, these non-tariff non barriers, prob probably not. I would just say whether they're just straightforward tariffs or these non-tariff barriers disguised as uh, health and safety regulations, the consumer pays. The European consumer is the loser at the end of the day. I know uh, European consumers have somewhat different attitudes than Americans do towards uh, bioengineered uh, foods, but I'd say let the market sort that out. You can have labeling, uh, organic foods, that sort of thing, or there's a growing niche for uh, organic uh, foods and, and let the market uh, sort that out. But I think not only European consumers are paying a price, uh, in particular the beef uh, issue as well, uh, but I think ultimately uh, European Union producers, the farmers themselves, are going to lose out by, in a sense, uh, turning their backs on a very promising technology that does not have any uh, legitimate health uh, impacts. We'll take two questions here in front from these two ladies. Uh, please keep it short, and uh, let's get short answers as well so that we can... Sorry. Oh, don't worry. So that we can cover more territory. Okay. Uh, my name is Adriana Dantas from Georgetown University. But before uh, doing my PhD here in Georgetown, I w uh, was a member of the Brazilian delegation in both sugar and cotton cases. So my, uh, my first question goes to Mr. Messerling. And uh, I would like to hear from you, how uh, do you evaluate the impacts of the WTO ruling on the sugar case, on the reform of the, um, of the sugar regime? I know that last week there was a meeting in Brussels, uh, and um, Brazil, Australia, and uh, Thailand were together to negotiate the implementation of the ruling. 
And I also would like to hear from you, uh, from you and from, from Mr. Griswold, whether uh, the fact that the EU tends to be more... Ten, there is a chance that the EU will impl implement the decision faster than the U.S., uh, whether this will generate, will put some pressure on the U.S. to implement the ruling in the cotton case. Okay, and one question here in front. Ann Topweiler with the Hewlett Foundation. Patrick, you mentioned that the um, direct payments are really a, a transitory um, scheme moving to something else and that the farmers are now may be beginning to see that they want to move there faster. And I, in the context of the 2008 review or the 2013, what, what could be possible and what do you think reform might look like if we're moving further in that direction in Europe? Because I think I've had farmers here in the U.S. express the same mm -hmm. concern about domestic support, particularly after the Washington Post series, where they realize how vulnerable mm -hmm. that might be okay. to uh, outside criticism. All right. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. You, you go first. Um, on the impact of the WTO ruling on sugar, I don't know because I did not read the newspaper last week, so I don't know. My feeling is that the Commission is relatively eager to go, uh, and in fact, if they go, you know, because this kind of reform uh, is, is a very uh, limited reform. Uh, it's two, twice the word, three times the word price to twice the word price. So they know in some sense it's a little bit outdated. It has been very, very long. The problem I just have about sugar, and I mentioned that, is that what would be the impact of the bioenergy and especially the bioethanol stuff on the, on the sugar? And I'm afraid there are many attempts to fool the game here and to believe that, oh, things can go like forever because we have now the bioethanol and the biofuel. And I'm afraid that that will open a kind of window of non-responsibility, which is completely wrong, uh, which will be a, a, big, a big problem. Let's say, just take an example. My own government has taken one month ago, the Minister of Finance, a scheme of subsidizing bioethanol, which is crazy because 75% of our cars are running on diesel. So, so this already doesn't match. And all these uh, farmers are arguing, oh, but then we can produce more sugar. And they are looking at sugar, uh, as you know, El Dorado. Mm -hmm. They may, in fact, go to energy and forget the Italian sugar market. Uh, and then in five years now, from now, when everybody will understand that bioethanol is not the long-term uh, new energy, but things has to be changed, what will happen? You, you see what I mean? There is a lot of noise because of the bioethanol, and I just cannot assess about that faster than the U.S., then I leave that to you. Now, about the vulnerability, I really believe my scheme is the following one. Already Commission Official Board, the Agriculture com Commissioner, has already mentioned something interesting that not only there should be a, a cap on the highest subsidies, you know, the, the largest subsidies given to the largest farmer, but there should be also a cap on the smaller subsidies. And in fact, in the study that you found, your funding. Uh, I, I give you a premium for the outcome. Uh, we have found that there are a lot of people who receive less than 600 euros per year 
of subsidies. 600 euros per year is just a meal every month, you know. So you, we could clean a lot, not only at the top, but also at the bottom. And uh, at the top, which is, of course, where the, the big thing is, uh, that, I think, it should be left to the member states. My feeling, it should be largely left to the member states. Why? Because in the UK, if you tell them, the British, we should eliminate more rapidly the subsidies to the large farmers, then the British will not say yes. Um, because most of their farmers are large. So, uh, on the contrary, in France, you can play large versus small, and you can say, oh, we should really help the small guys and not the large guys. <coughs> so I think because of the different structure of the member states, there should be some degree of freedom of how to implement the, uh, the reduction of the subsidies. But of course, it should be done, I think, by 2008. I mean, that declared it the case. And I, I feel that, in, at least in my own country, there, is no, there will be no certainly major obstacle, but a politician who really wants to do it can do it. I would just say, uh, I think the European Union has set a good example for the United States in the way they have responded to the sugar decision. They've made real, real changes. Uh, bringing their prices down from three times the world price to twice the world price is progress, uh, in my mind. Not, not there yet. I think to the U.S. government's credit, uh, Congress has, has tried to respond to the cotton case in terms of at least the step two program, the subsidies for uh, U.S. producers that use cotton. So they've at least tried to respond. And what you hear coming out of the leadership in Congress is that the new farm bill, at the very least, they're going to try to make it WTO compliant. Uh, so I do think that while uh, I'm hopeful but not uh, full of uh, optimism that the new farm bill will be in a dramatic market direction. I think we will see progress in terms of cleaning up those areas like the cotton uh, program that have run afoul, obviously, of WTO rules. The study we published last uh, December by uh, Daniel Sumner, who was the consultant for the Brazil in that case, shows that the reasoning used in the cotton case could apply to rice and lots of other commodities. So uh, somebody said uh, the new farm bill isn't going to be written in Geneva, but it may be written in Brasilia. Uh, that, that case is going to have impact on, on the farm bill. So, again, I, I would give the European Union higher marks for the way they've responded uh, to, the, to the sugar decision. Uh, I think the U.S. Has, has tried to respond and will continue to respond uh, to the cotton case. Gentleman there, yes. Hi, David Orden from IFPRI and Virginia Tech. Uh, Patrick, on your proposal on the tariffs, isn't one of the critical issues in the trade negotiations how much the sort of middle-range tariffs will be reduced? The products that have like 20 to 40 percent tariffs, if you bring those down, you really open up some market access, whereas the products that have, you know, 300 percent tariff, you're not going to bring it down. So isn't your Swiss formula actually going in just the opposite direction that is, that it, that is under contention in the Doha round where... Europe is being pressed to bring down those middle-range tariffs a little more rather than keep those middle-range tariffs up? Um, uh, it's a good question, but you may have several types of Swiss formula. Uh, it's a complicated question, as you know. Uh, you may have the Swiss formula, the traditional one, as I showed. 
you may have a Swiss formula which in addition, so then you have one parameter on which the negotiators uh, decide to have an agreement on, agree or not. Then you may have a different kind of formula on which you, have, you, you just transform the formula and mathematically, arithmetically the formula and you introduce a second parameter which is precisely a political parameter by which you can carefully uh, take into account these middle people. Uh, and you know the um, I think still uh, the, the, the computer is still no, okay uh, because I could have shown this kind of formula which is it's a question of the curvature of the curve uh, the Swiss formula you may remember the Swiss formula in, in the direction you have was a little bit flat what you can do by with introducing another parameter will be to uh, make the curvature stronger and then think, take into account this issue with, at the same time, reestablish a, a more uniform tariff for all the rest of the product. Now, you may tell me, well, that's nice, this is just arithmetics, and uh, th that's it. So uh, it's a dream. Well, not really, because what you need is at least to have a sense of the curve. But you can, you can approximate the curve with the four tiers which exist, you know, four tiers means four segment by which you can approximate any kind of curve. So it's still, I think, plausible that if you take that into account, you uh, you uh, you take into account what you say, which is in fact the peak at the 80% that you, I show you. That mean which was taking care about the most important product, on which everybody, of course, look at. Can I just add that <clears throat> I think this gets to the heart of trade negotiations and agricultural reform. Uh, again, I, I would like to drastically reduce subsidies, and talking about decoupling is important, but really it's a question of uh, borders, uh, barriers at the border. Market access is the important key, and tariff spikes are what is really distorting the system. Uh, Dr. Messerlin men mentioned the Chile uh, tariff formula, which is a, it's now down to 6%, I think, a uniform 6% tariff, uh, which reduces a lot of the distortions. And the problem we have is not just a high average tariff on agricultural products, which is still worldwide uh, 50 to 60% and, and over 10% here in the United States, but the real issue is tariff spikes. And I think the beauty of the Swiss formula is that it goes after those tariff spikes and the the one formula you had there, I think it leveled out at about 30%, which is still too high, but it's a lot better than 100%, 200%, 300% uh, that are the tariff spikes. Just one second, rebouncing, because I was not sure to be clear about my, all my formulas. Um, I will prefer, in fact, in the current Uruguay round, that the community will say, could we agree on one thing? All the of the food products at 50% tariff rate, period. 40%, 50% even, everything at 50. I think that will be much more promising in the long run than all the current TRQs because nobody mentioned the tariff rate quotas, all this cuisine which is going on in Geneva, which will allow to get some burden out of the back of the negotiators but will put much more burden on the future negotiators because you have a lot of perverse uh, consequences of that. Unfortunately, I know it's not uh, possible today. But in fact, the Chilean started at what, 30%, the uniform tariff rate, like you remember? Some very high uniform tariff rate. Why not? But then the farmers will begin to do what they, what they have to do in terms of land, 
crops, animals, etc. And it will be much easier after that to calm down the game in terms of tariff. Okay, we'll have uh, two last questions over here, two gentlemen over here. <coughs> Very quick. One here. Yes, that's right. Uh, Wayne Mary, Dr. Messelin, would you expand on a point that you referred to in passing, which is the demographics of the agricultural population in age? Because this is not just true in Europe, but in all developing countries, except perhaps Australia, it's dramatically so in Japan, significantly so in North America, true also in Eastern Slavic countries, the former Soviet Union. Because in this country, one of the rationales for agricultural policy has always been encouraging young people to stay on the farm, which it obviously has not done. But as the populations of all of these agricultural countries participating producers age, how does that affect the relative political balance between them and the agribusinesses who are getting so much of the subsidies? Are, is, is this a demographic really creating a situation which we're not so much subsidizing producers as subsidizing processors? And one last question right in here. Thank you. My name is Wim Takken. I'm agriculture counselor for the Netherlands. Actual import duties paid at the border of the EU for agricultural products were 10.2% in recent years. I wonder if you included also the impact of the preferential treatments in your figures. And I also wonder if you included in your figures, as far as the protection goes, the impact of the intentionally not enforcing immigration and labor laws in the U.S., which brings the U.S. from a point of cost of labor and more specifically on the, post, uh, on the availability of labor, far more than all the numbers we discuss at the moment in Geneva. If I look at the 70 to 80 percent, n uh, workers not having all the documents as required. I also wonder if you include the fact that the veterinary rulemaking in the U.S. usually takes some four and a half years meaning that after having had a disease, it might well take you four and a half years before the rulemaking here is done to come in again. And for the plant health, I better not tell you how long it takes. The last pest risk assessment we asked for was realized 20 years after we applied for it. And at that moment, the reaction was we, bet we have to update it now because it's already out of date now again. And so there are so many barriers apart from the things you included in your calculations. And my last question would be, well, we'll, we'll last, time, last question, no, uh, no. consider the first as, as co comments. Uh, my question would be, if, you, if I look in your graph, I guess that 70 to 80 percent of all EU agricultural products would be in that area where the offer on tariffs is lower than the Swiss formula would bring. And so I don't know what the intention is of your graph. The majority is where we offer more than the Swiss formula would bring. And I don't know why you don't mention okay. that. Thank you very much. Um, the first question, I, I'm not sure to have it well followed or your question. Uh, the, f the first question first was about demographics and the, 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 the impact and essentially the balance between the farmers and the processors. Uh, well, the, 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 demographic, the, the rural exodus, as we say it in French, I don't know how you say that in, so, in the same. The rural exodus has always been the case under the cap. And in fact, if you believe that the cap has been, uh, the subsidies of the cap have helped the, the farmers to be relatively capital intensive, invested in equipment, in fertilizer, etc., 
you should expect that, in fact, they were firing workers at a more rapid pace than without a cap. That has never, I, I have never seen estimates, careful estimates about that. So, and the few examples, we have very few examples in Europe, in, it was essentially Sweden, where they have begun to eliminate the, an agriculture during 18 months, so it's a very short period. Uh, there was no uh, change in terms of uh, exodi rural exodus and in, so in terms of demographics. Now, for the demographics, I don't see any reason why that would change. In fact, the young farmers could be more dynamic than the old ones. Uh, the, the head of the cooperative I am thinking about is somebody who has contact with Sigenta, which is a big f seed processor. They want to have contact with all the processors in, in, in Percy, and they are investing in agribusiness because they want to have the whole line. Uh, and I think this is really new blood in the way to conceive the, the agriculture and could be a rebalancing on the forces between uh, processors, uh, food retailers, and uh, agricultures. About your question on labor, labor regulation, is, is it correct? Did I understood well about this? It's intentionally not enforcing immigration and labor laws in the U.S.? Well, in the U.S., I'm, uh, it's for you. <laughs> in Europe, uh, it's not well enforced either. And we have, in fact, a population which have been, for example, Gitans, uh, uh, you don't know, Rome, I think, you, this is one. Gypsies. This is a population which I, in my own country, I just discovered the last two years, they have no right even no civil rights. They have to go every two weeks to the commissar to the police people to register, etc., etc. And this is a very important population in, in farming. You know, they, they help to go to uh, cut the rind and stuff like that. So I don't know the extent of it uh, in Europe, and for, it's for you in the U.S. Because well, that, that's a fascinating question. When I'm not writing about trade issues, I'm writing about immigration. And uh, uh -huh, okay. <clears throat> we, we haven't done a very good job of enforcing our laws because they're essentially unenforceable. We've got 100 million Mexicans south of our border that we've had long historical ties with them. We've had uh, legal guest worker programs, mostly for agricultural workers since the 1940s, so there's a well-established uh, network there. Our response is uh, we should make those workers legal. I'd rather they be here legally than illegally. We have demand for them. These are jobs that most Americans don't want to do, being out uh, in the noonday sun picking lettuce in Arizona and California. So I, I don't apologize for the fact that we offer opportunities here in the United States for low-skilled workers from from other countries. I think it's good for the United States. I think it's good for those workers and the remittances they send back home. Traditionally, many of them have turned around and gone back home after two or three years, and they take human capital and their experiences uh, back home. So I would encourage my European friends to look uh, perhaps at uh, more legalized immigration to help them address their uh, labor shortages in, in various areas. And, and I would just say that uh, I think with the expansion of the European Union, you also have uh, a farm sector now that can draw on workers that have wages that are significantly below the average wages here in the United States. In fact, the parallels are quite striking. You've got 75 million people uh, who've basically joined your economic area uh, who have uh, a, uh, wages that are significantly below your average 
wage. So I don't think it's a, a huge advantage we have in the United States, but I think it's a legitimate advantage uh, that we should make legal. Finally, on the demographics, I, I agree with the premise of the question. Our, our farm programs have made it more difficult and less attractive for young Americans to go into the farm sector. Let's face it, uh, most of them aren't going to go into farming. We're down to 2% or less of the population in farming. And that happens in every advanced country. The percentage of people in agriculture from day one of human existence has been on a downward trend, and that's progress. Uh, we're still a very competitive agricultural economy. We're just doing it with fewer and fewer farmers because they're so much more productive. Uh, but our farm programs have made it more difficult for young people to stay in farming. They've driven up the cost of land, made it a far more capital-intensive uh, uh, business. It has encouraged production in a few capital-intensive program crops like corn and wheat uh, and, uh, and rice, uh, whereas uh, a majority of the value of U.S. production is in the so-called specialty crops, which are smaller operations producing fruits and vegetables uh, and, and that sort of thing. So I think if we had a more dynamic, market-oriented farm sector, you'd still see uh, the continued downward trend in the percentage of Americans engaged in agriculture. Uh, New Zealand has shown you, your agricultural production can actually increase even as a share of your economy because your farmers become so much more efficient. But I think it would be a more attractive uh, sector to young, young people because it would be more dynamic and offer more opportunities. They'd be working for a marketplace rather than working for the government. Last word goes yeah, Patrick. No. Just for bouncing on that, the, 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 the CAP has created uh, young generations of farmers who wear hairs of their fathers, because entering uh, the, the agriculture business was so costly when you were not from a farmer family that, in fact, it was essentially because you were the son of a farmer that you became a farmer. And I think that was not good in terms of dynamics of the, of the sectors. And people who stayed outside were the guy with the really creative ideas on, on the farming. And if we eliminate progressively these uh, wrong in, um, incentives, then we will get more uh, new ideas in the, in the agricultural sector than we used to be during the last 40 years. Thank you very much for coming. Please join us for lunch upstairs. Thank you. Allez-y, non, non, allez-y, je vais voir après. Oui. Je suis journaliste à l'agence France Presse. Oui. Je vais me demander si vous aviez une seconde après pour qu'on. Euh, il faut d'abord qu'ils me fassent. Ils vont faire un interview ici. Vous en avez pour. Vous pouvez m'attendre. Je 